Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for all for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And indeed, you continue in the face, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This was the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, it's not easy to read Paul. He, he's got all those run-on sentences and big words, and you handled them really well. That's, that's good. Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. We are glad that you are here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And um, we are in the midst of a 10-week series in the book of Colossians. And that's the passage we're going to be looking at today is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And uh, it'd be helpful if you had your Bibles out to be able to follow along because uh, there's going to be a lot of not only verse by verse today, but clause by uh, clause. I'll give you a little uh, review and introduction so that uh, we're kind of up to date. We started this series last week, eight weeks to go after today. And last week was an introduction into the letter, uh, kind of explaining the city and the church and all that, kind of talking a little bit about Paul, the author of this letter. And then we got into uh, Paul's prayer for the church. He, he starts most, not all, of his letters praying for the recipients of his letter. And so his prayer is in verses thir- 3 through 14. And then we go into these nine verses, 15 through 23, that essentially do two things. Number one, they exalt Jesus for his character and his attributes. And then number two, he points out what All of that means for those who know Jesus, who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, and who are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is something that Paul uses 176 times throughout his letters in the New Testament. So it's an important part of his theology that those who uh, have been saved, who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, would be called in Christ. And verses 15 through 20, the first six verses of this passage that we're going to look at, are often included when studying and trying to understand something called Christology. So what is Christology? Christology is the part of theology. Theology would be the study of God. It's the part of theology that relates to the person, nature, and role of Jesus, of Christ. 
And these six verses, along with others in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, help us to gain a clear understanding of exactly who Jesus is. And so this is really an important passage. And one of the things that Paul is doing in these verses today is he's beginning his arguments against the false teachings and heresies that are circulating in Colossae and making serious inroads uh, into the people and the community in this church in Colossae. So we talked last week about uh, one of the things, one of the important things that Paul is doing in this entire letter is pushing back against these false teachings and heresies. So what heresy is Paul refuting? And that's a really good question because Paul never specifically spells it out, but we have really good clues, solid clues uh, from the letter itself, especially when we get into chapter 2, and from history, just reading the, his, the history around uh, this letter in the first and second century as well. Uh, it seems as though the heresy or the false teaching is that people are trying to either add to or replace the gospel of Jesus in some way. Add to it or replace it. Uh, mostly trying to add to it. And, and how would you add to the gospel? Well, you can add to the gospel by elevating the Mosaic law and saying that that's still important and still a part of your salvation. The Mosaic law being found in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. Another way to add to the gospel or replace it is to also bring in personal moral codes in addition to the gospel or to replace the, uh, the gospel. And then really more often and more commonly, it's how a church community can be infiltrated by what, what Paul would call plausible worldly philosophies and trendy cultural fads in ways of thinking. And, and I'll tell you, this has been a challenge for the gospel for 2,100 years. This, this has always been around. This challenge has always been around. From the very first day that the church started in the first century, there were challenges like this. And the challenges have continued forever until today, and they will continue until Jesus comes again. People want to add to the gospel. People want to edit or alter the gospel. The problem, I think part of the problem is it's just really hard to believe that Jesus has done everything and that we don't have to do anything. So we humans try to figure out ways to add to our salvation because we're just sure that grace isn't enough. And frankly, you and I just adore self-righteousness. We adore self-righteousness. Or... Or people will try it this way. They have their own manufactured moral code or system of deliverance or salvation or whatever you want to call it. And then they just sort of add Jesus and the gospel as an existential insurance plan. I've, I've got this that I've worked out for myself. And I'm pretty good at keeping it. But when I don't keep it, then I can just rely on Jesus and he can fill all the gaps. And that's not the gospel either. Now, we would discern that there are two parts to this false teaching, to this heresy. And they kind of go like this. A person says, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, you have Jesus, but you're really not saved and favored and blessed by God until you also keep the Mosaic law. And so there were some Jewish Christians in the city of Colossae who were part of this church, 
And of course, they favored this. They liked this. They, they, they wanted to keep the Mosaic law preeminent in their lives as they added Jesus to their lives. But it wasn't enough just for them to think that. They also wanted to teach it to the entire church and to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles in the church. And the second one is this. Yeah, sure, you have Jesus, but you're really not saved and favored and blessed by God unless you acquire this special secret insider knowledge of the cosmos, which is the universe, and of God, this special hyper-knowledge of God that only we, the false teachers, possess, and you have to come to us to be able to get it. It's a form of cultural sophistication and relevance is what they're doing. And this second one is actually, it has a name. It's known as Gnosticism, which comes from the ancient Greek word gnosis, which means to know or to have knowledge. And this was a common heresy in, already in the first century in the church, especially in the late first century and the early second century. Uh, the apostles were constantly battling against this Gnosticism movement. And I will tell you, it's a heresy that continues to permeate the church today. We have all kinds of pockets in the Christian church of people saying, yeah, there's Jesus, but there's also this special knowledge that only we have and you need to come to us to be able to have it in order to experience the fullness of salvation or real salvation or genuine deliverance. So either way, whether it's the law, the Mosaic law, or your own moral code, or Gnosticism, or a combination of both, it's adding to or replacing the gospel. And Paul is very clear about this in his letters, especially in the letter to, that he writes to Galatia, that you can't add to the gospel anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel. Jesus plus nothing. And like I said, this is nothing new today. Uh, it's, it's a shame that many churches today, though starting with the gospel and in good faith, they've wandered away from Jesus. They've wandered away from the gospel in favor of various forms of moralistic, pious, virtuous, insider world philosophies that Paul says in his letters to Timothy, he says this about these worldly plausible philosophies. He says they tickle the ears of the listeners, but they have no true power for living and saving. That's how Paul would describe them. And that's one of the reasons that the lead pastors at Redemption Church all across Arizona decided to study this book now because we're living right now in the thick of one of those cultural times where there's lots of cultural trendy fads that are pushing into the church and we need to be aware of that. Uh, one last thing before we dive in, I, I believe that there are two primary character characteristics of a heresy, of a false teaching. Number one, heresies or false teaching is often good teaching and good doctrine but taken too far. See, th this is, uh, most of us know really bad teaching and immoral evil stuff right when we see it. That's not generally what false teaching or heresy is. What heresy and moral uh, and, and false teaching is generally is, is it's, sort of, um, it's sort of wrapped in a solid biblical doctrine, but then there's something going on on the inside that pulls you away from Jesus. And, and so uh, when I was in school, one of my favorite professors at GCU was a guy named Mike Baird. He was a PhD in New Testament studies. This, you, did you ever have Baird? Trey, you did too? Okay, well, I, I, I love the guy. I know he was hu basically humorous, but he was a really good teacher. Anyway, um, here's how humorless this guy was. He wrote a textbook, an academic textbook on ancient Greek. Now, you, you just really don't have a lot of jokes if you're doing that. So anyway, um, 
he was one of my favorite. I, I took him for 12 classes, and he defined heresy this way. He said a heresy or a false teaching is anything that is elevated above the righteousness of Jesus in importance. So even baptism or spiritual gifts or the Mosaic law can become heresies, good things that are placed above Jesus and his righteousness in importance in the hierarchy of salvation, and that makes them bad things. So that's why we have to really be on the guard against these heresies. And then here's the second thing about heresies and false teachings. Heres the people who are teaching heresy and false teaching, always, 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 it's about power and control. It's about their power and their control that they're trying to exert over the listeners. And so let me reread that first paragraph that Charlotte read for us, and then we're going to unpack it. Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is a paragraph of Christology. It's praise for Jesus and his deity, and it expounds on his character and his attributes. And this paragraph soars. It is exalting. The language that's used is lofty. And Paul writes this paragraph in order to begin contesting the competing heretical teaching that is in the church at Colossae. But please understand, this isn't written just to confront the false teaching, but also to exalt Jesus and to encourage and strengthen the faith of the reader. Some even contend that because Paul's language that he uses here is so lofty, this paragraph is actually a hymn or a song of praise that Paul had written for the church. And here's the thing, and there's really no wiggle room here. Paul writes this in his customary language of there are no exceptions to these things about Jesus. You aren't the exception. You aren't special. You aren't outside of Jesus' purview of sovereignty. And, and so you just look at the words that he uses and how he closes any loop or gap in this. It, he restates things using different language to say the same thing in order to make sure we understand there's no wiggle room there. There's no exception whatsoever. It's, it's Jesus using similar language in John 14, 6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then just making sure that we get it, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Then he reiterates using different language. He says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's another way of saying he's the way, the truth, and the life. Paul uses very similar language here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go verse by verse, even clause by clause, and give you as much as I possibly can here because this is a really important uh, paragraph. And so if I see one person doing it right now, if you have some caffeine with you, you might want to take a swig as we dive into this, all right? So verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image here is a little bit different than the ancient Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament 
In the ancient Greek, this, this word does not mean a replica or a mirror image, but rather it means essence. He is the essence of God. So put it this way. Jesus made the invisible God visible. So if you want to know who God is, you need to know who Jesus is. Jesus, in his incarnation, we talked about that during the Gospel of John, in his enfleshment, in his coming to us, he made God tangible and touchable. Jesus shows that God is not just some ethereal mystery, but rather God is truth, grace, wisdom, and love that we can hold. And consider what John records in his gospel. John chapter 12. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He says in John chapter 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then verse 16, it says that Jesus is the creator. God created all things through him, and as such, Jesus can make anything happen that he wants to have happen. He, he can reverse what we think is natural science. He can do whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purposes because he is Lord and sovereign over everything. And because he exists before time, he existed before creation. And then verse 17, Jesus is eternal. He is before all things. Uh, the Greek and the Hebrew words translated as firstborn, if you look back at verse 15, you'll see that word firstborn there, actually mean before time. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus was necessarily born, that he was created by God the Father as an afterthought. It means that he existed before time. So verse 17 reiterates that from verse 15 and then takes it a step further. Jesus existed in time during his days on earth, but he, also, he also eternally exists outside of time and is never constrained by time. So we could put it this way. Jesus is outside of time, yet he did his immeasurable salvation work in time so that we could see it and embrace it. Furthermore, Jesus is outside of space, yet he did his immeasurable salvation work in our space. Jesus is sovereign over time and space. He's God. I, I, I know we don't think about space too much, but how would you like to be sovereign over time? Wouldn't that give you an advantage over everybody else in this world? That would be awesome. Well, he is. And therefore, Jesus, by his cross and resurrection, is the only mechanism of redemption and restoration that exists. The only one. And furthermore, besides restoration and reconciliation, he is also the sustainer. We're told in this passage that Jesus holds all things together. Without Jesus, everything would fall apart. So that word that's translated holding together or holds together, it, it means a type of harmony or a type of order. So a type of harmony and order in relationship, in vocation, in matter, and in science. You know, there's this, this theme out there in the world that says that if you're of the Christian faith, you are anti-science. I don't even know where that came from because Jesus created science. Jesus is into, into biology as much as anybody is. He's into chemistry. He's into physics. That's not the conversation I want to have with him because I'm not a scientist, but he's the one who created it all. He knows about 
all of that stuff. He, by the way, Jesus is also really good at math. So just wanted to make sure you understood that. But he's in all of those. He's everything. He is harmony and order in everything. You see, and here's the thing. Sin, sin engenders disharmony. Sin engenders disorder. Plausible worldly philosophies created and thought up by sinful human beings create disharmony and disorder. Uh, we did, several years ago on a Wednesday night, we did a really solid, in-depth study for several weeks on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And one of the things that we pointed out there was that if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that what God created was order. He created perfection, holiness, righteousness, order, harmony. Everything was harmonious. Everything was united. Everything worked well together. And then the minute in Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered the world, there was disharmony, discord, and disorder. And Jesus and the gospel come to bring that harmony and that order back to us. This is The gospel reverses the curse of original sin. That's, that's the way we might say it. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that Jesus is even in authority over those worldly things that you and I are impressed by that we think might be even better than a relationship with Jesus. He is even Lord over that stuff. And you know, I hear people say all the time, wow, things in this world are really falling apart. By the way, I used to hear them say that in the 70s and 80s too. So anyway, it's been true for a long time. But I will tell you that without Jesus, we would really truly discover just how far things can fall apart. As bad as we think they are, we need to understand that they're not as bad as they could be if, if Jesus just kind of went, okay, I'm done. That's it. And then verse 18, it says that he is the head of the body. And I want to do uh, something here. You don't have to go there. It'll be up on the board. But I just I want to talk about what he means by the body. This is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. It's Paul's letter that he had written about seven or eight years earlier to the church in Corinth about what a body looks like, about what a church looks like, about what a faith community is supposed to look like. And here's what he writes. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honor, honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. 
which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And Paul says that Jesus is the head of this body. People say to me, you're the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia. And I suppose that's true in terms of semantics. But really, our lead pastor is Jesus. And, and that should be true in every single church because it is the church of Jesus that we are here for. And then also it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, which guarantees our, for our future resurrection if we are in Christ. And that's what, on Easter, when we did all those baptisms, we were demonstrating that by, by lowering the person into the water, we are buried with Christ in baptism, in his death, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life, leaving our sin behind, and we are raised in righteousness. And then verse 19, Paul says that Jesus is fully God, even as he was fully man. Now, we talked a lot about this in the Gospel of John in the last year and a half. We talked about how Jesus is not a hybrid of some sort. There's no, Jesus is part this and part that. Jesus fully embodies everything. He is 100% divine. His deity is 100%. He's 100% human when he was here on earth. He is 100% grace and 100% truth. 100% love, holiness, wisdom, righteousness, judgment. Again, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. The spirit, word, wisdom, and glory of God is all found perfectly displayed in Jesus. And as such, there's no need for worldly philosophies or human contrivances or alternative gospels. That's Paul's argument. And then verse 20, Paul wraps up this paragraph saying, Jesus is the only path to reconciliation. So what is the implication of the word reconciled? So here you go. If, if I were to say, Joe's in the front, one of our elders. If I were to say to you, Joe and I have reconciled, what would you know for sure about Joe and I? you would know for sure that there had been a breach, a chasm. There, there had been a separation between Joe and I. You see, our sin separates us from God. And there is this unbreachable chasm between me and God, between you and God. There, there's no way that we can reach across because of our sin under our own power, under our own morality. There's no way we can fix that chasm. But through this reconciliation that Jesus provides for us with God the Father, he reconciles us to God. We are made one with Jesus. We are made one with God. And he does it, Jesus, uh, Paul says he does it by his blood. By his blood. We talked about that over Resurrection Weekend on, on Friday night on, and on Sunday morning. God has never changed his requirement that blood be the acceptable atonement for sin. He just needed the perfect lamb who was Jesus in order to be able to satisfy that need for holiness. So it's not the blood of animals or humans. It's not our blood. It's Jesus' blood. It's his sinless, perfect blood that went to the cross. And without his blood shed on the cross, we have no salvation. We have no reconciliation with God. Jesus does this 
for us. He's done it all. And he says on the cross, it is finished. And not only does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus reconcile to God, us to God, but it, through Jesus, he also reconciles heaven and earth. In other words, he reconciles creation. Uh, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, when that initial sin entered the world, entered the universe, it also corrupted all of creation. It didn't just corrupt us, it corrupted all of creation. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that even the rocks cry out for redemption. All of creation is crying out to be redeemed, and Jesus does that. And that's why we look forward to his return someday. So, you want to know Jesus? These six verses really help. And then there's these last three verses, so 21 through 23. Paul writes, and you, just imagine there's a therefore at the beginning of this. Therefore, because all of this is true, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind from Jesus, from God, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we were all once apart from God. We were alienated. Literally, our minds were hostile toward God. We had an understanding of self and of the world that only came through our perspective of selfishness and ego and the corruption of sin. But now, Paul writes, but now. But that's like a trumpet blast when Paul writes, but now. Just think of him yelling it, but now, and here comes the good news. He's proclaiming the good news. Through and by Jesus' sacrificial, purposeful, uh, perfect death, we're reconciled to God, we're redeemed. And as a, as a result, verse 22, we are above reproach. Those of us standing in Christ, claim Christ, we are above reproach. I know some of you are sitting there next to people going, well, I don't know about that. But it's true. If you're in Christ before God, we are above reproach. And that should be a wow moment. It should. I am to think this is the best part of our text today. N none of us is ever really completely above reproach, right? Not in the marketplace. Are you 100% above reproach in the marketplace? How about in school? How about with our friends? How about with our loved ones and family? There is no time, place, or context in which any of us are 100% guaranteed above reproach, except if you are in Christ and God is the judge. That's where we are above reproach. God looks at you, he looks at me, and because of Jesus, you are above reproach, 100% guaranteed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit we are with Christ. The Bible even calls us saints. So when you get home today, just say, hey, I'm a saint speaking here, okay? See how, how well that goes over. Anyway, we are saints in God's eyes if we're in Christ. So because this is true, Paul writes in verse 23 to resist the temptation to this false teaching. He says, do not shift from the hope that you have in the gospel. That's the point he's making. It, it, these worldly, plausible worldly philosophies are so enticing. They seem so virtuous, so pious, and, and they just lure us. 
And, and, and so many times we'll even think, well, I'll just kind of play around the edge of it and, and kind of just sort of, I, I won't go all the way in, but I'll just test the waters. But that's what these plausible worldly philosophies want because then you test the waters and it just keeps drawing you in. And he's saying, don't waver from the hope that you have in the gospel. Stay steadfast in that. Paul knows that he's dealing with teaching that has captured the imagination of many people in the church at Colossae. Same as today. There is always something new and easy and sophisticated that's being proclaimed by somebody in and around the church. There's always somebody going, ah, oh, I've got a brand new idea. Nobody's ever thought of this before. Read some history. They've thought of it before. Also, read your Bible. Because in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes what? There is nothing new under the sun. We just repackage all these old ideas, and then we have better technology with which to proclaim them. That's the only difference between us and Solomon's day 3,100 years ago. We need to understand this. See, they're tempted to leave or add to the gospel because, these, because of these worldly philosophies and teachings. They are tempted to give up on Jesus, and so are we. Don't do it. Don't do it. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance, one of turning from sin and turning from the worldly philosophies that tickle our ears and make us feel good and virtuous and instead turn towards Jesus and constantly seek after him. So that's our call, to know God and to seek his will and his wisdom. And, and i got to tell you that... As I read through this, uh, one of the things that comes to mind for me is this kind of also feels like a New Testament Isaiah chapter 6 moment. So let me just finish by reading uh, that. We're going to go into the Old Testament to the proverb of, of, uh, uh, prophet of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Here's what's recorded there. This is maybe 2,800 years ago. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these are like angels, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of, people, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus on the cross. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. I think you and I often overestimate what the world and culture and others can do for us, and we underestimate what Jesus can do for us. And that's one of our downfalls. And then in the midst of that, um, Seth Trout says, 
this. He said, you know, we often don't denigrate Jesus. It's not that we denigrate Jesus. But we're willing to demote him just a little bit. Because then we can kind of, we feel like we can make him kind of manageable. And the problem is, is that Jesus isn't manageable by us or anybody else. But the minute we begin to demote him, it makes it easier to start elevating these other things that are tickling our ears. Don't demote Jesus, not even a little bit. Paul says here, he is supreme above and beyond everything. And that's who we give our life to. And his resurrection proves that for us. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy Father, we're thankful for your word and its truth. And we, we do thank you that Paul has recorded these words for us in a context that might have seemed unique in that day and in that time, but is actually really quite common in history a context in which the world and the culture and its philosophies are pushing back against the true, uh, glorious, grace-filled gospel of who you are. So God, remind us that it's, that it's all you and that we can trust you to be our provider and our protector in all of that. God, that we can give our lives to you. And it's for your good and your glory, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of uh, reflection now. We have uh, the Lord's table set up, communion. When you step out into the aisle, you come down here. When you're ready, you don't have to do it right away, but when you're ready, you come down. Uh, Paul tells us in, in the book of 1 Corinthians that, that we should prepare ourselves, that we should pray and contemplate and reflect before we come forward and take the elements, the, the bread being the body of Christ and the juice and the wine being the blood of Christ that's shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's our new covenant. And we have, we have the elements here that we used to have years ago before COVID. We've, we're doing that again. But we also have the kits too. If you're not comfortable yet taking um, the elements from the tray, we also still have the kits for you as well. So when you come, remember that it is both a confession and a celebration. Celebration. When you come forward to take these elements and take them back to your seat, uh, you are confessing that you, you need a Savior, but you're also celebrating that you have one who's done everything for you. And that is a good thing. God has shown us favor through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's do that now.
Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty Rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in him. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over.
Amen. So as long as you come here, and as long as, you know, we're blessed to be on here, we're going to continue to preach Christ and Christ crucified. We're going to sing it. We're going to declare it together as one. Um, that's what we got to do today. Well, today's the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, we like to do uh, a little something where we'll gather back at the Connect desk, and I'll give us a little tour around campus. And if you're new, or if you've been coming for a little bit, and you want to learn a little bit about us, um, I'd love to do that. It'll take no more than 10 minutes. You can ask me some questions. Also, come to the membership class, because then we get to talk about things more deeply, and it's really great. Uh, but let me pray over us as we go into the week with this from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Love you guys. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.